Good job. Well, good morning. We're going to be in the book of James. We're going to start in the book of James. We're going to wind up back over in the book of First Timothy that we've been in the last few uh, few Sundays. But I wanted to start with uh, with something in James. I felt like the Lord was leading me this direction, and so uh, let's turn to James, chapter four, and verse eight. And once again, this is the oldest book of the New Testament. The book of James, and so uh, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, and uh, so James chapter 4, verse 8, and then we'll, we'll move back over to 1 Timothy here in just a moment, but we're going to refer back and forth to this, this verse uh, today. Let's stand together in, as we read God's holy word. It says, this is James 4, 8, draw nigh to God. And he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And that, uh, I looked up that last phrase there uh, where it says, uh, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And that has the idea, double-minded, has the idea of uh, having a double interest and he says, look, purify your hearts, uh, double-minded. And so we're going to refer back to that. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you give us uh, promises like you gave uh, James to write, that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. That's a, that's a very, very powerful promise. And Lord, we pray that this morning, that every heart in here would draw near to you. And Lord, for those little children that are back in children's church, we pray that their hearts would be drawn to you. And Father, that you would have your way in their lives. Now this morning, Lord, we we need you. We recognize that. Uh, We need you in every aspect of our lives. But we, we don't want to be divided in any way in our lives. But our total interest, our total devotion needs to be to you. And we pray that this morning you would have your way, your perfect will in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. So now let's turn back over to, uh, to 1 Timothy. And, and we'll refer back to uh, the James passage as we go. But really, what we're talking about this morning is a total devotion to God. And so, we've been in 1 Timothy, and we're in chapter 3 right now, and Paul had left Timothy at the church in Ephesus as he traveled to Macedonia to spread the gospel message. And remember now, Ephesus was a very difficult place. It was filled with all kinds of sin, uh, including idolatry. Uh, There's some bad stuff that went on in Ephesus. And so the church was certainly affected by the false doctrine that that was all throughout Ephesus. And that false doctrine was, I would say it like this, that false doctrine was just clamoring to get in the church. As a matter of fact, it seems to me 
that there's a good chance that some of the people, now listen to this, that some of the people in that church in Ephesus were involved in various sins. And maybe some of the sins that are mentioned in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy down about verse 9 and 10. You could read some of those sins there. We won't turn to them. But it seems to me, now this is me talking, this, I can't prove this from Scripture, but that some of the people in that church were likely involved in those, some of those sins, and they were justifying that. And that would, uh, you know, that would lead us to believe that that was a part of the, the false teaching. And so if, when, when you read chapter 1, you get that feel uh, of uh, that being taught, trying to justify uh, what they were involved in. And so uh, Paul told Timothy that he, ha- he charged him, look, you've got to stop that false teaching. You've got to stop that from, from happening. And you've got to tell them, look, they can't teach any other doctrine besides the truth. And so um, that's the setting, and that is the setting in which Paul instructs Timothy about biblical leadership. And so uh, here we have in chapter 3, Paul lays it out for Timothy regarding uh, the bishops, the pastor, and the elders. Remember, the bishop, pastor, elder is a reference to the same guy. It's just different functions. Remember, we've talked about how the bishop refers to his oversight. And then the pastor refers to the shepherd. Okay, the bishop would be more like an administrative function. And then you have the pastor, which is the shepherd. And then the elder is the leader. It refers to his leading, his counseling. He uh, he teaches uh, the the people. He guides them from the Word of God. And so, uh, as well, uh, we have the deacons also in chapter three. Those are the church leaders. Uh, but Paul is not writing aimlessly. There's purpose behind what he's writing, and this is the very Word of God. This would be, in chapter 3, it would be church leadership 101. This is church leadership from the Word of God. Now, man has has warped that uh, in many cases, but this is church leadership. And so, now this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at two very, 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 very important Biblical principles from God that he mentions here in chapter 3. Now, here's the first one. Be sure and write this down. The first thing we're going to look at is that the church, and I would put it like this, the church, because the Bible's going to say this, the church of the living God, the church of the living God is the pillar and ground of the truth. Okay, let me repeat that. This is the first point this morning. This is the first thing we're going to look at. The church of the living God is the pillar and ground of the truth. And then the second thing we're going to look at is great is the mystery. That's what the Bible says. Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of of godliness. So we're going to look at those two things. The church, let's look at that one, this one first. The church of the living God is the pillar and ground of the truth, of the truth. Now, 
we've talked about the the qualifications. We you know we slowed down last week and it kind of almost brought brought it to a halt as far as going through those qualifications. And uh, it's very important that we get those those first ones down because uh, these others are going to tail out of those at least one of those first ones. And so we talked about. In that first passage, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, If a man desire the office of a bishop, uh, he desireth a good work. And so there, of course, we've talked about it's a he. Uh, but the, uh, the first qualification is it has, there has to be a desire there. And it's not a manufactured desire. It is a desire from God. It's an undeniable desire. And then the next thing it says, the next qualification is, in verse 2, the bishop, remember that's a reference to the bishop, the pastor, the elder, it's all one guy. The bishop then must be blameless. And the Greek means this, that there's nothing that we can grab hold of, that anybody can grab hold of concerning that guy. He has nothing to be grabbed hold of that we can say, aha, that somebody can say, we, we got him. And so nothing that Satan or maybe an unsaved person or anyone else can grab hold of in this man's life. And notice it says a bishop then must be blameless. That's right now he must be blameless. And uh, there may be some things in his past life, uh, earlier in his life that need to be looked at, but he must be blameless right now. And uh, now that blameless is the one, that is the qualification that all the others are going to tail out of. Okay, it is the big one. So uh, then last week we looked at the husband of one wife. It says that in verse 2, the husband of one wife. There are some churches that will teach that, uh, okay, he has to be married. And I can understand there are some uh, good reasons why a person, why a man needs to be married in order to be uh, a bishop or a pastor. I can understand that. But remember now, the Bible never contradicts itself. And so Paul was not married. He was single. Jesus Christ was not married. He was single. And so Paul even says, I wish you were like me. It's better to be single, better to be unmarried. I'm paraphrasing. In other words, he, you can totally devote to God. So the Bible never contradicts itself. I would say it like this. If he is married... He needs to be the husband of one wife, and, and we talked about this last week. That is a reference to faithfulness. It's a reference to faithfulness. As a matter of fact, it means this in the Greek. He is a one-woman kind of man. And we talked about can he be divorced? Can he, uh, does he have to be married? Uh, I, w- I would say this. I would caution those churches that, uh, that say, well, he has to be married because there are many married men that are unfaithful to their wives. Their, their eyes are wandering. Uh, they're, they're looking at things on the Internet they ought not be looking at. And so there are uh, married men that are unfaithful. So we've got to be cautious on that. And so this man has to be uh, a one-woman kind of man. Has he been divorced? Uh, could he be divorced? Uh, the Bible doesn't stipulate that. He, it says he has to be a one-woman kind of man. That's the meaning of it. He, this man has to be faithful. Now, if a, a church says, well, we're going to make it to where he, you know, he has to be, he cannot have had a divorce or, or uh, he has to be married, I suspect maybe that's okay 
for someone to put those uh, that threshold in there. But literally, it means... He is a one-woman kind of man. That's the literal interpretation of Scripture, and we, we have to be cautious on veering off of that. Um, the next one is, we looked at this one, he has to be vigilant. Uh, that's in verse uh, 2 as well, vigilant. means there's not a lot of things in this man's life that are pulling on him. Okay, He can totally devote to God. And then sober, you can see that one there, he is serious uh, he's serious about the work of the Lord. He's serious about the ministry of God. And then you can see good behavior. You can see that also mentioned in uh, verse 2. See, all of these are coming out of blameless. There cannot be, I mean, blameless. There, there's nothing to grab hold of on this man. So it mentions given to hospitality. Uh, and I think I already went over good behavior. That good behavior one is a reference to it's not a chaotic life. His life is not chaotic. It's, it's, it's organized. Okay? If, he can't, if he can't handle his own life, how can he handle the ministry of God? So that good behavior, when you see it there, it's a reference to it's, he doesn't have a chaotic life. He is, uh, he's an organized man. He can handle the ministry of, of uh, God. And then given to hospitality, that simply means he is a lover of people. This man loves people. You notice when Pastor Wayne Johnson was here, he loves people. And so that's, uh, that's one of the qualifications. Apt to teach. Now, that doesn't mean he has to preach because, see, in, in these New Testament churches, there would often be, uh, and there is today, more than one elder, more than one uh, pastor, more than one uh, bishop. And so that doesn't mean he has to this man has to be the preacher, although one of those guys would rise to the top or, or rise to the, the level of preaching. He would be the, the main preacher, in that, like James was in the church of Jerusalem. But the idea here, apt to teach, this man is able to, from the Word of God, help direct people in their lives, help counsel people in their lives. Uh, the, this bishop, this elder, this pastor, he has to be able to do that. That means he is a student of God's Word. Now look at this next one. You can see it in verse 3. It says, not given to wine. Not given to wine. The idea there, what that literally means is not drunk. Okay, he's not drunken. And it has the idea of not staying near Wine. As a matter of fact, when you look up in the Greek, that's exactly what it means, not staying near wine. And so uh, we've talked about this before, but oftentimes in Scripture, or oftentimes what people will do is they'll use the first miracle, you know, where Jesus turned the water into wine, and they'll say, well, you know, Jesus, Jesus uh, you know, he, he permitted wine and all that. Well, here's what you have to do. Anytime you're studying wine, uh, wine in Scripture. It's always important to look at the context. Anytime you're studying anything in Scripture, context is everything. You look at the setting, you look at uh, uh, what's being said, what's, what's, what's the context. And so remember, in that context, the man said, he said, boy, you know, most people serve the best first, and then, you know, after everyone's drunk, then they bring out the, the worst. But Jesus gave the best at the end. He gives the best. The idea there is unfermented. So in the Greek, not given to wine, not staying near wine until it becomes fermented. And here's what we have to know. 
is is when when you uh, when you partake of something alcoholic in a very short time it doesn't take uh, very much of alcohol to start the inebriation process which starts right here and it starts rather quickly and so here's what we have to know is our Lord is not going to do anything to cause someone to sin. He will not do that. He is serious. He gave his life because of sin. And so he is not going to do anything that is going to lead someone to sin. And here's a good verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22 says this, Abstain from all appearance of evil. Now, that was hard to argue with. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Of evil, and so uh, in our day and age, you know, in this setting, it was it was wine. In our day and age, it might be uh, uh, whiskey. It might be uh, uh, you know the legalization of marijuana. It might be uh, not not staying near marijuana. Not staying near any kind of uh, drug. Uh, not having an addiction to anything like that. Uh, it's very important not to try to justify our sins. Uh, you know, I believe that's perhaps one of the things that these people in Ephesus were doing. They were trying to justify. So that's very important. So we take the whole Bible and we see the seriousness of sin. Sin is a very serious thing to the heart of God. And so God is not going to do anything that's going to lead someone into sin. Now, in verse 3, you'll see it says, no striker. This man, this, this, uh, this potential pastor, he cannot be a striker, and that means he's not contentious, he's not quarrelsome. Um, and then you'll see that it says he's not greedy, a filthy lucre. You see that in verse 3 as well. And that means not greedy of money. In other words, this man does not have a divided interest. He is totally devoted to God, uh, not a double-minded man, as we read in James chapter 4, verse 8. No divided interest. He's not greedy of money. Uh, you can see also in, in verse 3, it says he is patient. He is patient. Now, that word patient is interesting here in this, in this context. It means equitable, fair. It, means, it also means gentle. And it also, when you look it up in the Greek, it says seeming, S-E-E-M-I-N-G. Here's what that means. It is apparent. It is obvious. This guy is gentle. He is, uh, he is fair. He is equitable. And there's a verse in Philippians that says this. It's Philippians 4, 5. It says, let your moderation be known unto all men, the Lord is at hand. Let your moderation, and that word moderation is the same Greek word for this uh, word patient in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. It means the same. He says, let, uh, let your moderation be known unto all men. Let your patience be known unto everyone. In other words, don't be a person like this that's going up and down. But this person is gentle, he is equitable, he is fair, and Everybody knows it. It's plain to see. The next one says in verse 3, it says he's not a brawler. That means he abstains from fighting. 
you know, we could fight about something every day, couldn't we? Get up on the wrong side of the bed, and, and, uh, but it, he abstains from fighting. He is wholly devoted to God. Uh, verse 3 also says he's not covetous. And that, that simply means not loving money. Not loving money. No divided interest. I love that passage in Hebrews. I'll read it to you. It's Hebrews 13, 5. And you know this passage. It says, let your conversation, your behavior is what that means. Be without covetousness. Same word as over here where he says, not covetous. Uh, he says, and be content. This is Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be, with, be content with such things as you have. I like the end of that verse. It says, for he hath said, he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So he is, uh, he's, not a, he's not given to wine. He's not a striker. He's not contentious. He's not greedy of filthy lucre, not greedy of money. He's fair and gentle and equitable. He treats people right. And uh, he's not a brawler, and he's not a fighter. He's, he refrains from fighting, uh, not covetous. And then you can see in verses 4 and 5, it says uh, his children are in su- subjection. Now, you see that there uh, in verse 4, it says one that ruleth his own house. It's referring to his house. Okay, what's in his house? His children are in subjection. Now, that, the idea there is they are obedient children. Now, have you ever seen a, a pastor, who, uh, uh, a preacher who his children were, you know, there's, there's jokes about preacher's kids, aren't there? You see, you, you've seen a, a pastor who um, his children are just as wild as they come. Well, I will tell you, not in every case, but I have known this to be true. What happens is, is when that pastor has a divided interest. In other words, he's trying to lead the church, but he's got his, his, his foot over here in the world, and he's trying to lead the church. He's, he's straddling the fence, and his kids can pick that up. His kids are smart, and they can, they can, they can pick that up, and it causes all kinds of habit, havoc. Now, that's not true all the time. Every time you see a, a rebellious uh, child that is a pastor's uh, child, that doesn't mean, okay, that pastor... Uh, is is straddling the fence. It's not you know those children are children, and uh, they uh, they have self wills as well. But this man, the Bible says, the direction from Scripture is that he ruleth well his house. His children are in subjection; they are obedient. And then down there in verse six, it says he's not a novice. He's not a no, he's not a new convert. And that means not one that recently became a Christian. Okay, uh, there are churches that will. You know, okay, this guy became my. Uh, he became saved uh, a month ago. Now he's going to be our pastor. Now, there are churches that'll do that, but the Bible says the Bible gives us clear instruction. That's not the way you do it. Okay, and then the last one down there in verse seven, dealing with the elders or the the bishops, the pastor is he has a good report. Of them which are without. That means those that are, are unsaved, they're not a part of the church. He has a good reputation with them. And uh, that's important 
that a pastor have that. That doesn't mean he hangs hangs out with those that are unsaved and into all kinds of stuff. That's not what it means. It means he has a good reputation with them. He has a good reputation. See, those people are going to eventually have some kind of issue in their lives. Somebody's going to die that they know. Or they're going to run up against some issue, and it's so good when they they can think to themselves, you know, who can I talk to? And then they remember that guy, that guy that has that good reputation with them. And they can go to him and trust him. So those are the qualifications of of a pastor of a bishop, and I know we went through those uh, last ones rather quickly, but you can see that if he doesn't have a desire, that's the first one, then it stops. He's not the man, and he must be blameless, and all of these others are going to come out of that blameless one. The husband of of one wife, all that. He must uh, not be a brawler. All those things are going to come out of... of, uh, blamelessness and then the qualifications of deacons follow that and so let's look down there at uh, verse 8 it says likewise must the deacons you see that so the deacons remember there are three there were three new testament or there are three new testament church offices church leadership consisted of three offices the first the apostles they are off the scene now okay to be an apostle you had to have seen Jesus and be commissioned by him. So those guys are off the scene. We still uh, read about them. We still read some of the, the writings that uh, uh, in the Word of God that God gave them. But now we have chapter 3 of, uh, of 1 Timothy. Then we have 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus. Those are the pastoral epistles. And so they talk to us about... Uh, the, the bishop, the pastor, the elder, that's one guy, and then the deacons. And that term deacon means servant. Let's read through the deacons. You'll see that they're very similar with the exception of one particular qualification. It says, likewise must the deacons be grave. That means honorable. Uh, that means they are of high character, not double-tongued. They're not going around behind people's backs, stabbing them in the back. Not given to much wine. Now, there's the same meaning there. The same, not given to much wine, not staying near wine. Okay, we're not addicted to anything. Not greedy of filthy lucre. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. The idea there is that the decisions of their lives are based on eternity. Okay, they're they're listening to the conscience that God has given them. God, remember, He has given each one of us a conscience, unsaved and saved. And that's like that moral filter. They're listening to that conscience. They've not become calloused. And uh, they're making the decisions of their lives based on eternity. Verse 10 says, And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found, look at that, blameless. See, these guys are blameless. And so uh, verse 11 Even so must their wives be grave. Their wives have to have high character. They have to be honorable, not slanders, sober. Uh, That means they're serious about the work of God, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. There we go again. 
husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree, a great reward, and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So we see the qualifications. That's church leadership. And let's look at verse 4. Excuse me, verse 14. Verse 14 says this, these things, Paul is, Paul is telling Timothy, remember this, this book is written, this letter is written specifically to Timothy, um, and then we see that with the pastoral epistles. They're written specifically to those men, Timothy and Titus. And so here he tells Timothy in verse 14, these things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly, and I'm going to show up soon. You know, I, I, I've told my kids that in the past. You know, I, you better get that done because I'm going to be there. I'm going to be checking it out. So that would have been an encouragement to Timothy to, well, get these things taken care of. Remember, Tim, Timothy had his hands full. He's one of my most favorite Bible characters. He has served in some hard places in Thessalonica. He served in Corinth. He served here in Ephesus. These are some hard places to serve in as a pastor and uh, Paul left him there, and, and Paul said, you set these things in order. Don't let them teach that false doctrine. And you ordain elders in every city. And, and uh, here he's telling him, you've got to stop these people from teaching the false doctrine and set this leadership up. So he's given him a, uh, quite a few things to take care of, and he says, I hope to come see you soon. Now look at verse 15, and here's where we pick up. He says, but if I tarry long that thou mayest know how you, ought to be, how you ought to behave thyself in the house of God. You see that? I give this to you, he says, so you know how you ought to behave in the house of God. Look what it says, which is the church. See, it's not talking about the building here. It's talking about when, when uh, we get the, the gathering of saints, the gathering of believers, the church. Of the living God, he says, it is the pillar and ground of the truth. You see that? The church, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, I looked up the word pillar. Here's what it means. It means a post. It means support. It is a very important part of of a building. And you look up the word ground, and it means... uh, it, it means basis, it means support. It is very, very important. So whether in Ephesus or whether in Davis or wherever, the church is not to mimic the world. The church is the, the, uh, it is the pillar and ground of the truth. So it's not to mimic the world. It's not to imitate the world but it's to promote the truth of God. And so we need to be all about the truth of God's Word. If we're to impact, if we're going to impact Ephesus, if we're going to impact Davis, or the world, we have to be all about the truth. The Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that the world is winding down. There are some that teach, did you know there are some that teach that it's getting better? The Bible teaches that it's winding down. You could read the book of Revelation and see that. But as it winds down, the church 
is to continue to propagate the truth. Do you see that? The church is to propagate the truth. Now, we have an enemy. That word Satan means enemy. And he wants the church to compromise on that and just to kind of mimic the world so the world can continue to just wind down. But direction from God is that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And so as the, the, the world winds down, the church is to propagate the truth. And uh, we, we're to point to God. That's, that's our job. Now, the Bible teaches this, that there's going to come a day. There's going to come a day when God is going to remove his church, his people, from this world. Now, I don't know. This thing may continue on for many, many years. But the Bible teaches that there's going to come a day when God will pull his people out. He will pull all the church out and take them to heaven. And so that's when things, without the truth, you think about that, this world will not have, see, we're in the church age. The church has not always existed. We're in the church age, and there's a purpose for the church, and we are the pillar and ground of the truth. We're to point the the world to Jesus. But when God pulls us out, that's when things will really get bad. And we must be, as a church, we must be all about the truth. Now look at verse 16. It says, And without controversy, without controversy, without debate, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. Now look at this. He's talking about Jesus. God was manifest in the flesh. That's Jesus, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. That's Jesus Christ. And so Paul says here, he says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, I looked up godliness. Godliness means this. Now, it's a reference to Christ-likeness. See, in in that context there, he's referring to Christ. Christ-likeness, godliness. It refers to reverence. It refers to respect of God. And it refers to, have you ever heard this word? When you look up in the Greek, it refers to piety. You know that word? Piety. I had to look that word up just to make sure I had it right. Here's what it is. It is a strong, so it's referring to godliness. Here's what it means. It is a strong belief in God that is is so strong that it shows up in how someone lives. That's godliness. It's, It's not just, yeah, I believe in God and we live like the world. See, it is, that's not what he's talking about. He says, look what he says there in verse 16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He's talking about a belief in God that is a person that believes in God so strongly that it shows up in how they live. So see those qualifications that we just went through. Those aren't just for the church leaders. See, those guys are supposed to be the examples for the rest of us to follow. They're to be examples. That's what Paul says. Examples. 
for the rest of us to follow so that there is no divided interest. There is no double-mindedness, but we're wholly following God. That double-mindedness, it destroys, it destroys, period. It destroys families. You know, when a young person sees their, their mom and dad being double-minded, it destroys. It, double-mindedness destroys. But God's way is that we have a belief in him so strong that we are wholly devoted for him, to him, and it, it shows up in how we live. It shows up in how we live. So we're talking about that kind of belief. God is on a, commi- on a mission to reach the lost. He's on a mission, and he wants to reach them. And how's he re- He's reaching them. He's using us. He's using the church. And so we are the, the pillar, the pillar and ground of the truth. God is using us. You know, uh, back over in 1 Timothy, Chapter 2, verse 4, we saw that it's his will that every person be saved. Now, he knows not everybody's going to be saved, but he's trying to reach them, and he's reaching them through us. You know, I have my brother-in-law, who is the pastor in that other land across there, uh, you know, on over. He told me this recently. He He said, you know, when I was growing up and I was a young man, I wasn't a good example. He's talking about himself. He said, I just wasn't a good, good example to, to, uh, to many young men. And so what he's done, now get this, he has a heart for people. I'm telling you, he, he's, I've worked for him for years. I've, I've served under him. He has a heart for people. He has called several of those young men, just recently called several of those young men. Actually, they're his age now, 60. 63, 64 years old, he called them, and he invited them over to his house. He said these words to me. He said, I just want to crack at them. I just want, to, I want an opportunity to lead them to the Lord because many of them were, were, uh, were headed in the wrong direction, and he felt like he didn't do justice to them back when he was around them. So he invited them all over to his house, and they all showed up. And he is, and he's invited them again to his house. He's trying to lead them to the Lord. See, that's what God is doing through us as the church. We're the pillar and ground of the truth. We, we're not to mimic the world, but we're to be godly. Godly. And, and Paul says, great is that mystery, the mystery of godliness. Now I want you to listen very close. Romans 3.23, Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All. And that word sin means to miss the mark. In other words, on our own, we all miss the mark. Now listen close. Romans 6.23, three chapters over, to the nose, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we can see funerals every time you see a funeral. That ought to be a reminder. The wages of sin is death. But he's talking about more than physical death. 
You know, the context of that verse, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The context there is really eternal. So we're all born spiritually dead. We, we've talked about that before. We've all, we've all been born spiritually dead. And if that spiritual death is not rectified, this side of physical death, then what we call the second death becomes a reality. Remember that? And so, uh, the, the, and, and how, do we, how do we rectify it? It's through the gift of God, the gift of eternal life. Now, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 10. I want you to see this. I want you to see this. Romans 10. Romans chapter 10, let's look at verse 1. Romans 10, verse 1. It says, Brethren, this is Paul talking, the same one that's writing to Timothy over in 1 Timothy. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. You see that? Look at verse 2. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God, of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their their own righteousness have submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Excuse me, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. It's Jesus Christ. Do you see that? And where he says, for Christ is the end of the law for, the right, for righteousness to everyone that believeth. It's talking about a belief unto salvation. It's talking about saving faith for everyone that believes. It's Christ. He is the only the only source of salvation. Now, I want you to skip on down. Skip on down to verse 9. Paul says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart, that's very important, shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now, listen, that word believe there is a belief unto salvation. It's a belief that Jesus is the Savior. It's that kind of belief. It says in verse 10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith this, look at this, verse 11, for the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. And he used the word Greek there. That could be a reference to anybody else. There's no, no difference between a Jew and anyone else in this matter. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Look at verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God is after every person. Now, what's complicated to me is he already knows who is going to be saved and who's not. I can't understand that. But I know this. The Bible says he is after everyone. He's after them all. And he says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. We read over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that he wants everybody, he would have all men to be saved. Can you see the heart of God in this? I tell you what, I prepared for this sermon, and it touched me so. This, this sermon touched me more so than I think any other sermon I preached. Can you see the heart of God in that? Can you see the heart of God in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that the, the, the qualifications for godliness that don't just apply to the leaders, it applies to all of us and why he sent his son. See, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth as this world winds down. You can see how important it is that we conduct ourselves differently from the world both the church leaders and all the rest of us. God wants to use us to reach the lost. You know, a few days ago I had, I had two of my cows have little baby calves. And I, look, I, I went out just a couple of days ago, I think it was two days ago, and I was looking for one of those calves. And you know how they hide their calves. I couldn't find this one little cow. I saw, I saw one, but there was two. And I couldn't find the one. And I, I walked all over the place. And I looked and I looked and I looked. And I could not find that thing. I prayed, Lord, help me to find that little calf. And he was hidden well. And I found him. I was so thankful when I found him. God is after people. He wants to save people, and He wants to use you and I to reach them. Is that not powerful? Now, we're going to have an invitation here in a moment. And if you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior, I pray that this morning you would do that. You can do it right where you are. You can come down front, and and, uh, I'll pray with you. Michael will pray with you. Johnny will pray with you. I don't think Johnny's going to be in here. Someone will pray with you. But maybe you're thinking, like I thought one time before I was saved, what are people going to think if I walk down that aisle? I've been coming to church all these years, and everybody thinks I'm saved, and then I walk down that aisle. What are people going to think? Hey, let me tell you. Don't you worry about that. This is far too important to even be concerned about what someone thinks. God wants to save you. Remember, no divided interest, no straddling the fence, but totally committed to God. He wants to to save you, and then He wants to use you to reach others. 100% devotion. You know, in that one verse, that we read at the beginning that says, if you'll draw nigh to God, He'll draw near to you. Listen to the wills in that. If you will draw near to God, He will draw near to you. That's a promise right from the throne of God. So how can? what are some things you can do to draw near to God? What are some things we can do to draw near to God? If you're unsaved, the very first thing is you got to get saved. And then you've got to pour yourself into Him, totally devoted to Him. As Michael comes on up and the rest of us stand, 
Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have shown us salvation. You've shown us the way. And Lord, if there is anyone in earshot of my voice right now that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, please don't let them leave here without calling upon you. And Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that we'll make that that determination right now that we will no longer be double-minded, no longer have split interests, but we will be totally devoted to you. Lord, that you would use us to reach others in a way like never before. Lord, we pray for those people all around the world that are unsaved, those in the darkest corners, uh, those in North Korea that have been shut off from the outside world. Lord, would you reach them? Lord, I pray that you'd save their leader. Oh, God, if there's a person in here, would you save them this morning? In Jesus' name, as we sing together.